This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. And I had uh, three major objectives for this talk. Um, one is to introduce the concept of what actually cancer is. I'm a cancer biologist. What I study is how radiation acts as a carcinogen. I also uh, study how uh, we understand the mechanisms by which ionizing radiation can um, increase the incidence of cancer. I'm also interested in how we use radiation as a therapeutic. And actually those two pieces of the puzzle intersect and they provide us with new insights onto both aspects, both ends of the spectrum of radiation as a carcinogen and radiation as a therapeutic. But tonight what we're going to talk about is human papillomavirus and how it is a, um, acts as a carcinogen. So I, I wanted to begin with um, a very simple slide um, that just says, what is cancer? Um, so there's two kinds of, of, of um, malignant or, or uh, cancers. One is a tumor. A tumor is an aberrant growth. So a wart is considered a tumor, um, but it doesn't never progresses. It just appears um, by uh, an increase in growth um, as an abnormality on your skin. Whereas cancer is a disease which progresses further because there's both um, loss of internal and external control of uh, growth, the um, increased uh, production of cells and death. So for a normal tissue, there is a, a process of regulated um, increase in cells, um, but then there's also a daily process of death in, in our bodies. We lose billions of cells over the course of a lifetime and millions of cells every single day because the body is very efficient in recycling uh, cells that have outgrown or, or outlived their utility and so are uh, recycled through a death process. And we're gonna come back to that in more detail. So let's just start with this idea that cancerous disease in which internal and external controls have been um, um, manipulated or, uh, or altered in such a way to alter both uh, growth and death. Um, I like to show this in um, a more schematic form uh, because what is depicted here in the second slide of what is cancer is the what we see uh, about cancer when we look at a piece of tissue. So I'm trained in, in, as part of my training is pathology. And so how we describe cancer begins with what looks abnormal in a tissue section. So a slice of tissue where you say, okay, a normal, um, this particular normal tissue will have uh, what I depicted here is a simple epithelium sitting on a basement membrane separated from the other tissue compartment called the stroma. So stroma and the epithelium, because we're talking about um, malignancies of uh, epithelial tissues. These are the two major compartments. And so a normal epithelium maintains its um, uh, functionality by regulating growth and death and function through signals that occur um, between cells, uh, between tissue compartments and uh, with distant organs. So we're gonna talk about that in a second. So some insult occurs. Um, it could be ionizing radiation exposure. It could be HPV infection. So here's, here's uh, an insult, an injury or an HPV infection that leads to abnormal uh, growth. And so you begin to see this by um, um, just 
um, disorganized uh, uh, organization of the tissue. You might begin to see inflammation as depicted here in this purple cell. And then as tumors, as initial uh, cells acquire additional mutations, you actually have a malignant tumor cell, which is depicted here in blue. These cells have acquired genetic alterations, in other words, alterations in their DNA that confer um, specific behaviors or allow the cells to um, have specific behaviors. Behaviors. And these behaviors include aberrant proliferation, a resistance to death, and an ability to invade the surrounding tissues. This is oftentimes accompanied by a reaction in the stroma, which includes inflammatory cells and, and changes in the, um, uh, the stroma cells until you actually have an invasive cancer. So this is depicted um, as these cells are now no longer um, uh, uh, obeying the rules set by this barrier function of the uh, basement membrane, and they're beginning to invade the surrounding tissue and they're recruiting the vascular system. So these events are depicted or are, are, are explained at a cellular level um, with these ideas in multi-stage carcinogenesis that you have initiation, promotion, and progression. And that those, this, this model of cancer describes cancer as a cellular event in which the cells acquire different aberrations in their genomes that confer upon them the ability to evade signals in their surrounding tissues. But at the same time, as I've depicted here, it's really not a single cell process. That tumor um, and those nascent tumors are beginning to recruit changes in the stroma. And so there's a Commonant uh, changes in the normal tissue in which that cancer is in, in um, uh, occurring, and so this is actually what we call the construction of the tumor microenvironment. And so here we have parallel processes in which the tumor uh, microenvironment is initiated, uh, constructed, expands, and then matures to support that tumor growth as an aberrant tissue. And what's really important for how we now think about cancer is not thinking about it this at the cellular level or the tissue level, which I've depicted in this schematic, but also that there's a systemic response. And that actually has uh, gained a great deal of traction in recent years in the last decade um, because because we've now begun to understand the anti-tumor immunity that shapes the, the context in which cancer occurs. And so we're not going to get into this a great deal today, but uh, suffice it to say that your immune system is constantly patrolling the tissues for these aberrant growths. And in um, patrolling, they, they first recognize that and try to eliminate the cancer. And then um, by this process of eliminating, by killing specific cancers, they edit and then the cancer cell is eventually escapes. And one of the, the points that I'd like to make is that this process, regardless of what the initiating event is, and oftentimes that's there are multiple initiating events, takes an exposure, um, it occurs across the course of time um, and occurs as a function of age. So this is a very long-winded process. I study breast cancer and in breast cancer, if we start with an irradiation exposure, we know that we will not see an increase of cancer um, in a population that's been irradiated until 20 or 30 or 40 years later. So it's a very slow 
indolent process, mostly because you need all these processes to occur at the same time or in, in, uh, in concert in order for a cancer to actually evolve. So although we see cancer as a frequent event at the population level, one in three people will be diagnosed with cancer in their lifetime, at a cellular event or a tissue level event, it's very, very rare. You have three uh, times 10 to the 12 cells in your body over the course of your lifetime, you generate three times 10 to the 15th. And so really only one out of those 10 to the 15th cells um, will actually ever become cancer. So at that level, it's kind of rare. So that's our introduction to what is cancer. I'd also like to introduce what are viruses. So <laughs> I, I almost feel like this needs no introduction in this particular time of the pandemic. We've had a great um, uh, and uh, well, a fast uh, introduction in education and viruses um, and the uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus in particular, but there are many different kinds of viruses that are associated with different kinds of ailments or in most cases are innocuous. So viruses are extremely, extremely small particles that cannot be seen by the naked eye and even by a typical microscope. You need a scanning. These lovely uh, pictures that we have colorized over uh, to the left here uh, depicts a, a micro, uh, an electron microscope uh, view of um, uh, cancer, of course, with uh, additional artist uh, um, rendition of color. So, because uh, electron microscopes are always black and white. But a virus is actually a DNA wrapped in a protein coat. Actually, viruses are not able to reproduce on their own. They actually hijack the cells, our epithelial cells or a particular cell type to replicate themselves. So it's kind of a, a little robot that installs itself into your cell. And then the virus DNA is copied and its genes are expressed using the machinery of our own cells because they don't, these viruses are so small, they have no replication capacity on their own. Um, so what we actually study when we're thinking about viruses and what diseases they call is what do these viral genes do? So in uh, viruses associated with cancer, oftentimes what they do is they make the cells grow faster. So here's a list of, of viruses that are associated with increased cancer risk. Hepatitis B is associated with um, uh, liver cancer, Epstein-Barr virus with uh, lymphomas, herpes uh, virus, we're going to um, um, type eight, human immuno HIV is associated with a particular kinds of cancers. Um, um, there's also a, a cancer called Kaposi's sarcoma associated herpes virus, Merkel cell polyomavirus, and then the one we're going to talk about tonight, which is human papillomavirus, which is um, abbreviated HPV. So the study of tumor viruses um, are interesting as etiological agents in cancer biology and in human disease, but they're also interesting in their own right. We're, we're curious about how they actually manage to do this, and by understanding this biology, we're actually able to identify what we call oncoproteins, proteins that are uh, promote the genesis of cancer and as well as tumor suppressor proteins, proteins that suppress the ability of, an, of a virus to um, actually cause a cancer. So these this biology of viruses is interesting in its own right. If you're a virologist, it's interesting for an epidemiologist who's associating the virus infection with disease. And it, it's interesting to a cell biologist because the way these viruses have hijacked our own uh, cell machinery tells us a lot about how that machinery works. 
So let's uh, focus in on this uh, HPV. Uh, so human papillomavirus is the name for a group of viruses, actually a number of them that affect your skin. Um, HPV is the most common sexually transmitted infection. An estimated 79 million people in the US are infected with the virus. Um, one a very prominent mechanism of infection is genital infections that are passed on through genital skin to skin contact and can be passed from one person to another even if there are no symptoms. So one consequence of HPV is genital warts. You might know you have genital warts, but you can also have HPV and not even know that you have uh, that infection. And um, so this is one of the reasons that makes it very difficult to control. So um, the symptoms and effects of HPV infections vary a great deal. Most strains do not cause any problems. Some do cause these genital warts, while other types can lead to cancer. So let's talk about uh, that in a little bit more detail. So one of the things we've come to recognize over the last 25 to 30 years is that um, HPV is a very common cause of cervical cancer, which is the second most common cancer in women uh, globally. Virtually all cervical cancers now in the United States, 99%, are linked to genital infection with HPV. Um, of course, one of the things we have instituted, and I don't exactly quote me on when this, but the pap test, which is a way of, of looking at the cells that line the cervix and asking whether they uh, uh, have abnormal uh, shapes or features have actually um, is been one of the uh, tools we have to recognize that a woman has HPV infection and to treat that woman uh, to, to give her that information so she can reduce her risk by other means. So, um, so the pap test is one way to do so. More recently, we've introduced this idea of an HPV vaccine. So vaccines were first targeted because it's such a prevalent infection. Most people have it. You can't vaccinate somebody after they've had the infection, right? You have to vaccinate them before. And so that's why those vaccines were first targeted to adolescent girls in order to stop the development of cervical cancer in the next generation of women. Um, these are very successful uh, vaccines. We, have, we know this after even a very short period of, of use in, um, in, in uh, the United States. I think it was introduced uh, maybe 15 years ago. Um, so now these HPV vaccines are being made available to boys because HPV is associated with testicular cancer, penile cancer, and to high-risk groups such as people with immunosuppression and to middle-aged women. Um, so these are. Um, this is one of the ways now that we've identified HPV as an etiological um, a, uh, a mechanism by which cancer occurs, you can now begin to um, um, use that information to control um, uh, HPV infections in your population to try to reduce the risk. But how is HPV actually cause cancer? So as I already told you, HPV is generally innocuous. It's not as, you know, 100% of people are, well, a very high percentage of people are infected with HPV, but very few of them actually, uh, women develop cervical cancers or men develop penile cancers, or what we're talking about today, head and neck cancers, um, actually occurs in a small population. So let's talk a little bit more about how HPV causes cancer. So um, HPV, this virus um, has genes within it that encode for uh, proteins that will do certain things. And the two things that uh, most widely study 
is they have they encode for a protein called E6 and another protein called E7, which are highlighted in, in the little diagram over here. And these block two very important proteins uh, that are known to be tumor suppressors in humans. They're called P53 and RB1, which is, stands for retinoblastoma, uh, because um, RB is very highly associated, or mutations in this uh, particular tumor suppressor is uh, associated with the uh, uh, a particular eye cancer. So what happens with HPV is that the, the viral proteins inactivate these tumor suppressors, and this allows cells that contain mutations to proliferate. And that is a very uh, broad view of how HPV um, increases cancer. So I already told you a virus might cause the cells to replicate more and by um, causing those cells to replicate more and uh, blocking these two tumor suppressors, it opens the gates. So there's more likelihood that those cells will progress along the pathway that I described in that second slide from normal to malignant. Um, in this regard, the question always still remains, why does HPV cause cancer in some people and not in others? So we, we know the infection is widespread, um, but most of the time, most healthy people will clear that virus uh, through their immune system. So most people clear it and they never see have any evidence that they're infected with HPV, although you could test for it. Um, in some cells, or in some people, the infected cells persist for, for decades, but still have no consequence. They cause no harm. And as I tried to explain in that first uh, slide is that um, cancers require multiple things to go wrong. So in some people, in some cells, in the, the cell, the tissue, and the systemic response all um, kind of go the, the long, hard way to actually uh, generating cancer. So this multiplicity makes the complete process very rare and very unpredictable. And so we can say that HPV um, infection increases your risk of cancer. It doesn't mean it's it's 100%. In fact, the frequency is very, very low um, because you need this multiplicity of events. So um, what we're going to focus on today is the incident of HPV positive head and neck cancer, which has risen driz um, dramatically over the last uh, 50 years. Um, so uh, what's depicted here are the black uh, schemat or the black uh, line depicts um, the frequency of HPV positive cancer in um, head and neck cancer over the course of uh, multiple decades. And you can see it's increasing. Uh, between 1980 and the current, um, the, the last point depicted here. Same time, it's important to recognize, and I'm sure uh, Jason's going to talk about this in more detail, that most head and neck cancers are HPV negative. And so the relative portion of HPV positive ones have, have increased. Um, that is very interesting uh, as because it really highlights the role of HPV as a means to start the process of cancer. Nonetheless, it's also quite interesting that when you compare the response of patients who have an HPV positive cancer to the ones that have an HPV negative cancer depicted up here, this is survival. Uh, this is disease-free survival on the top and at the bottom is overall survival. And the HPV negative cancers do much worse. 
compared to the HPV positives. So we have an increasing incidence of HPV positive cancers, but when we give them their standard radiation and chemotherapy, they do very well. So their survival at five years is 70% compared to an HPV negative um, uh, patient who has only a 30% survival at five years. So this observation, which was only made about uh, 10 years ago, has led to the question is why? Why is the response of HPV positive cancers versus those that are negative um, so different? Is it because uh, um, the patients are younger. HPV negative cancer tends to occur in older patients. Uh, the etiology there is associated with a smoking and drinking over a long, a long lifetime of smoking and drinking um, that is associated with HPV negative cancers. And so in and HPV positive cancers tend to occur in younger people under the age of 40. Um, it's also thought that HPV being a virus is immunogenic. It activates your immune system. So I have already mentioned the immune system is constantly patrolling for viruses and for other aberrations, including uh, malignancies. And so maybe um, it does better because it's more immunogenic. And then um, it could be that it's because HPV regulates the human genes and actually engenders a tumor that's quite different. And that's where I actually got very interested in this, um, in this um, epidemiologies and these observation, because as I've already said, um, HPV positive cancers have a much better prognosis. So this poor prognosis is, is striking. And one of the th objectives of, of understanding HPV biology is to kind of understand, well, if we can make an, HP, if an HPV positive cancer respond so well to therapy, can we make an HPV negative cancer do so? So let's go back to our little schematic of the HPV genome. And again, I have the P53 and RB, which are suppressed by these um, viral genes E6 and E7. But poorly, it's less well studied is um, the fact that this is not the only, these are not the only genes that um, the HPV uh, suppresses. In addition, it suppresses uh, a group of proteins that are involved in a pathway I'm quite fascinated by, which is a, a protein called TGF-beta. And so what this shows is that E6, E7, and E5 block components of the TGF-beta signaling pathway. In my prior work, um, I had identified uh, TGF-beta as being very important in the response of tumors to therapy. And so what we postulated was actually that HPV positive cancers, because of the way they've blocked the TGF-beta signaling pathway, have weak TGF-beta signaling. And that what we were interested in is that weak TGF-beta signaling we had previously associated with how cells respond to DNA damage. And so we postulated that it's the weak TGF-beta signaling leads to ineffective DNA damage response. Therefore, the chemo radiation therapy that is administered is more effective and that's why you get better prognosis. So um, we started this project five years ago when I, I joined UCSF, and um, we uh, went through a variety of different studies to look at how TGF-beta was involved in HPV-positive cancers. And this is just a schematic that goes into the nitty-gritty details of how TGF-beta is actually regulated. It's a very uh, pretty little schematic I've used for almost all my talks, because what it tells you is that TGF-beta actually sits outside the cell. It's these little 
uh, horseshoe shaped things. Um, it's a small protein that moves between cells. So it signals between cell types and cell tissues. Um, it controls proliferation, differentiation and regeneration. And in normal tissue, uh, TGF-beta is a tumor suppressor. So by HPV shutting off TGF-beta, it's shutting off a tumor suppressor, allowing the cells to now proliferate. And that is mediated through this action of TGF-beta to bind its receptors and activate this protein uh, pathway called SMAD, which makes all my cells, my at least in my cartoons, uh, turn pink. But we're not going to really talk about that piece so much as to talk about what TGF-beta does in the context of, of cancer. So in cancer, TGF-beta is a, uh, so once the, the tissue, so I just told you TGF-beta is a tumor suppressor in normal tissue, but in cancer, it's a tumor promoter. Cancer cells actually switch the, the whole paradigm of TGF-beta biology from being suppressive to being promoting um, so that they can use TGF-beta to block tumor immunity. Uh, is extremely immunosuppressive, so tumors make lots of it, um, and to construct a tumor microenvironment, so to recruit a uh, vasculature and to create an, uh, uh, a growth, um, a tumor permissive environment. Um, what I'm interested in that is, is that TGF-8 is also induced by our treatments, radiation and chemotherapy, and that that actually blocks tumor control. So I don't have time to go into the details mechanistically of, of how that uh, occurs, but essentially what happens in um, that we're interested in is that if we can understand this biology, we can target drugs to remove TGF-beta. And the idea is that that would then achieve the same benefit that we see in HPV positive cancers. So this is just a uh, slide to show you that TGF-beta is everywhere. It's in the stroma, it's in the vasculature, it's in the myo, um, in all the different tissue compartments. And when we irradiate that tissue, the tissue uh, gets hit over and over again with radiation. But explicitly what happens is that it, it becomes very, uh, very, very TGF-beta rich. So what we've tried to do is to translate this TGF-beta biology that we studied in mice to cancer therapy. And what we've done is we've used inhibitors of TGF-beta in mouse uh, cancers, and we've uh, shown that it indeed impairs DNA damage um, response and results in greater tumor cell kill in, in the human and, and uh, mouse uh, cancer cell lines, and that by inhibiting TGF-beta, we can actually increase the response to radiation in our mouse models. So how do we now use this information in humans? How do we actually take this, this experimental biology and put it into the context of a human therapy? So what we um, focus on is the DNA damage response because it's the Achilles heel of cancer. By the tumors are, are, are malignant because they don't control their DNA very well, which actually also makes them vulnerable. So what we've actually figured out is that no, since normal cells use TGF-beta to actually repair their DNA, what happens when cells lose TGF-beta signaling like HPV positive cells, they uh, become deficient in DNA repair. And that in, does indeed increase their sensitivity to DNA damage, just as we postulated back at the beginning of the study five years ago. And that this TGF-beta um, biology means that we can actually use TGF-beta inhibitors to um, inhibit the DNA repair pathways and increase sensitivity to DNA damage. And the way we actually go about um, demonstrating that is um, by 
doing functional analysis of TGA-beta signaling. Because this now um, then leads us to the three gold coins of the realm for the moment in uh, personalized cancer treatment. We want to actually know who's going to benefit, what they're going to benefit from, and we want to know that before we begin treating them so that we can avoid toxicities. So the way we've done this is we've created little um, transcripts, uh, so to speak, of TGF-beta and uh, DNA damage genes. And this slide is probably too complicated to go through in great detail. But what we're showing is that if you take HPV positive um, um, cells uh, or tumors in this case, these are, are tumors from patients, and we look at this uh, signature of, of uh, DNA repair called LTJ versus TGF-beta, we see that they are anti-correlated. You can see that depicted here. And then we, we take the, the, the um, patients and we look at how they respond to therapy. If you have a high um, LTJ score and a low TGF-beta score, then those patients respond very well to cancer uh, treatment, regardless of whether they're HPV positive or not. So that uh, leads us to this idea based on all this biology that uh, from HPV that TGF-beta and DNA damage response gen gene signatures associate with um, neck uh, cancer patient outcomes and that we can use this association um, to look for this in other cancer types. So uh, just to summarize what I've told you today um, about HPV and cancer and therapy uh, is that certain strains of HPV increase the risk of cancer. HPV uh, increases risk of cancer by shutting down the TGF-beta pathway that affects how cells that line the body and you know, your skin as well as other uh, organs um, that line the body proliferate, uh, which increases their cancer risk. These patients um, also with HPV positive cancer have a better response to care uh, therapy than those that are negative because of the same function of, of, of HPV, which is that shutting down the signaling, signaling that controls their proliferation also shuts down their ability to respond to DNA damage um, through this uh, cytokine TGF-beta. And by understanding how HPV is increasing response to therapy, we can use that information now to improve response to HPV negative cancers. So this is a great deal of information in a short time. And so I'll just um, end with just a, a word about the value of what we're trying to do here in the department is to increase the response to radiotherapy. This DNA damage that I've talked about today is um, radiation therapy is prescribed with curative intent and 40% of all cancer. It is actually a personalized treatment for that individual. Um, Jason will tell you a little bit more about that. Uses very, very wonderful um, um, uh, equipment and um, capacities. 16% um, of cancer cures are actually attributed to radiotherapy compared to only 2% for chemotherapy. And it's an extremely cost-effective, only 10K for a course of fractionated conventional uh, therapy compared to more than 100K for immunotherapy. So what we learn with these studies of HPV and other cancers and how the DNA damage response um, is regulated allows us to make radiation more effective, and it's already a very effective um, uh, treatment modality. So there I uh, will introduce Jason Chan, um, who is a, a clinician scientist in the Department of Radiation Oncologist, and he is going to uh, begin the process of telling you more about therapeutics. 
Thank you so much, Mary Ellen. Um, I have no relevant uh, disclosures for my talk tonight. Um, I have three learning objectives uh, for us tonight. Um, we, uh, together we will understand the key role that radiotherapy plays um, in the treatment of HPV-associated uh, oropharyngeal cancers. Together we'll understand how head and neck cancer is caused by uh, uh, the HPV virus is different from those caused by smoking. And then importantly, we will become familiar with um, the efforts that we're leading here at UCSF in trying to reduce the side effects and improving the quality of life uh, for our patients with HPV-associated oropharyngeal cancers. So um, by way of background, uh, as you heard from Mary Helen's talk, um, you know, viruses play an important role in, uh, in carcinogenesis. So there was a study this year that reported that about 13% of cancers um, are, are caused by um, uh, viruses, or, or sorry, are caused by uh, in infections. And so the most common are, are um, H. pylori, um, HPV, which is the topic of tonight, uh, and hepatitis B and hepatitis C. And so this is a map of the world of, of cancers um, caused by HPV. And so you'll see that it's a, um, it's a global uh, phenomenon, um, even though the distributions of the different types of cancers uh, caused by HPV may be a little bit different from, from region of the world to the other. Um, so this is my uh, um, uh, simpleton's uh, understanding of, of the HPV virus. So it's a, it's a DNA virus. It infects um, uh, cells on the surface of the body, as Dr. Barcellus Hoff um, uh, eloquently told us about. Some strains of the virus cause benign growths, um, colloquially uh, known as warts and some strains uh, actually lead to cancer. Uh, so because they um, infect cells on, on any part of, of the surface of the body, uh, you know, in principle, these cancers can arise from um, uh, pretty much any mucous membrane. So in the mouth, in the throat, in the cervix, or the, or the, or the anogenital area in both men and women. And so as Dr. Barcellus Hoff had mentioned, um, these viruses make proteins that remove the breaks and cause um, uh, unregulated growth of these surface cells. And so to give you a picture, how does that happen? So if you have a cut on one of your mucous membranes or on the skin, the virus travels its way down to the deep layer of the basal stem cells of, or in this particular case is the skin. So, um, uh, so uh, keratinocytes in this particular photo. As these cells are infected with the virus and proliferate and reach the surface, these um, uh, are known as squamous cells because uh, as they mature and proliferate, they become flatter and kind of look like scales of a fish. And so that's where the name squamous cells. So all this is to say that uh, HPV uh, virus causes squamous cell carcinomas pretty much uh, anywhere along the mucous membranes on the surface of your skin. So what's happening in this country with regards to the landscape of HPV-associated um, uh, cancers in general? 
So because of the decline in smoking, most head and neck cancers or the HPV negative cancers are decreasing incidence, but there's one notable exception and that's uh, oral and uh, oral pharyngeal cancers. And it is, and as of 2010, uh, uh, there was a change um, in the landscape of HPV-associated cancer such that oropharyngeal cancers has become the most common HPV-associated cancer in the United States. Uh, and so just a quick glimpse into the future, what do I think the future, uh, you know, what, what do I think will happen with the incidence of this cancer in the future? Well, I think it will go down. And why do I think that? Because we know from our experience from cervical cancer um, which, um, you know, for which a vaccine was approved in 2006. And then this was a study on the left uh, from Sweden of this year. And you'll see that if we use uh, cervical cancer as an example, people who were not vaccinated had the highest incidence. People who were vaccinated a little bit later were right in the middle. And then people who were vaccinated at a young age fall at the bottom. And so as of this year, HPV vaccine is formally approved as a way to prevent oropharyngeal cancers. There's already good data showing that even a single dose of the HPV vaccine leads to uh, less, uh, uh, leads to a change or, or less detection of the actual virus in the oral, oral cavity in patients. We don't yet have the same data as in cervical cancer that the incidence of the cancer will come down. Uh, however, since this cancer is generally in older patients, I think uh, in the next 20 years, in the similar cohort of patients, we'll find that the incidence of uh, oral pharyngeal cancers is also coming down, uh, similarly like it did in, for cervical cancers. Uh, so, that, so all that was background. And so I wanted to talk about um, uh, uh, what I do, which uh, um, is uh, treating patients with these type of uh, cancers with radiotherapy and why radiotherapy is so important. Um, so I just want to show you a mental, uh, I, I just want to show you uh, an, an image of, of what the types of uh, cancers that, that we treat in our department at UCSF uh, looks like. So here's an oropharynx cancer. Here's an anal cancer. Here's a cervical cancer. Um, all three are caused by HPV, and actually 90% of all of these are caused by HPV-16. So just as, you know, there are, there are so many H different HPVs, but this one specific one causes about 90% of all of these. And you can kind of imagine why um, uh, a modality like radiation, uh, or, or, or I should say, you can probably imagine that if um, uh, if we you know try to cut out around these tumors, it can lead to um, some pretty unpleasant uh, changes in um, your ability to swallow or uh, be able to urinate or have bowel movements. So there's some uh, so so a common theme in a lot of these cancers, based on their location, is that when they get big enough, um, you yes you want to cure the cancer, but you also try to preserve function, and that's that's where. And that's where radiation shines. Um, and so um, uh, this uh, is the type of cancer I treat. So this is the one that I'm going to focus on. So all these, so all the cancers I've previously shown have similarities um, in this treatment paradigm such that at an early stage, uh, if, if you catch it early enough, you can probably um, uh, just have surgery alone and um, 
and uh, and cure the patient, or perhaps in patients who are not a good surgical candidate, or depending on the circumstances, you can just use radiation alone. Um, so oftentimes we discuss which one is the better modality for the situation, but in a lot of cases, you can just use radiation alone as the sole treatment modality and cure a lot of our patients with this type of cancer. Uh, when they get large enough, then it becomes a little bit more of a um, uh, of, of a team sport, and um, you know we rely on each other's expertise to put together the best treatment package. And it usually involves uh, more than one form of treatment. But radiation uh, can still be the backbone of treatment, uh, or it can be used after surgery and essentially be used to, to, to sterilize the surgical cavity for any possible remaining cells. But pretty much in, in, in any scenario that's potentially curable, radiation plays a very important role um, for the treatment of these cancers. This is a timeline of uh, important events, uh, you know, since 1920 to now, of what has developed in both the treatments and biology of, of um, uh, our understanding and treatment of head and neck squamous cell cancers. Now, all I want to highlight is that, you know, radiation was there since the beginning as a very important treatment modality, and we're constantly refining. And a big part of what we do at UCSF is, um, number one, refine our practice of radiation, but also uh, incorporate all of these other um, scientific discoveries um, into our armamentarium together with radiation. Um, so how has radiation changed uh, um, and how is it continuing to change? So I'll just show a couple of photos. So in the old days, to treat even a small tumor, uh, you may need a big flashlight. Um, and, you know, because, you know, uh, similar to a flashlight, um, you know, if you shine the radiation, it hits everything in its path, and it's usually one intensity, and so it can be a pretty morbid uh, situation if you're trying to hit something deep uh, in the throat, which is what oropharyngeal cancer is. So now the standard of care is something called IMRT. Um, UCSF was an early adopter of IMRT, so we've been using this, uh, this technology for more than 20 years now. And the idea is that you can, uh, in a very sophisticated way, shoot radiation beams um, in many different directions and essentially sculpt out the shape of a tumor. And so this is what it looks like in real life uh, onto, um, on an actual CT scan. So on the left uh, is um, an image of a patient lying on their back. And the one on the right is the same patient, but in this orientation, you're looking, uh, it's almost like looking uh, at the patient head on. And if you take a particular slice uh, and look at the profile of it, then you can see the radiation doses. So we can essentially paint on radiation doses, depending on how much tumor we think there's in a specific area. So um, the red is a very high dose, um, the blue is an intermediate dose, and then uh, so on and so forth, and the, and the outermost is a, is a lower dose. So this is the way that we treat head and neck cancers. We give high dose of radiation, and if it's advanced enough, we 
add chemotherapy to make the overall package stronger. But right now the standard of care is this package regardless if they have, um, uh, regardless of their head and neck cancer came from HPV virus or not. So it's pretty, so even though it's sophisticated from a technological standpoint, it's quite cookie cutter. Uh, even though it's cookie cutter, it does work. And so for the vast majority of times, we do render our patients uh, free of disease. So this is an example of an oropharyngeal cancer. This is where it originated from in the tonsil. And this is um, uh, a metastasis in the neck. And this is the same patient before treatment. And even just three months after treatment, you do the same scan again and you won't find a, um, a trace of the cancer. Um, so it does work, but it is cookie cutter. And so now I want to uh, uh, talk about, from a, from a clinician standpoint, um, uh, why we might not want to give just one cookie cutter treatment and why it's important to understand the difference between head and neck cancers caused by HPV and those caused by smoking. Uh, so just in one slide, this is the difference for, um, um, in terms of patient characteristics between the two. Um, patients with head and neck cancers that, um, that were caused by HPV tend to be younger. They tend to be of high socioeconomic status. Um, they have different risk factors that led to their cancer, they tend to live longer. Um, and the location of their cancer is more predictable. Uh, and that's why this talk is very much focused on uh, throat cancers or oropharyngeal or, or cancers. And that's very different from um, uh, smoking associated cancers. Patients um, have different risk factors. And because of those risk factors, maybe they tend to be uh, they tend to have other comorbidities. They tend to have cardiovascular disease and COPD and other reasons why, and, and are just less healthy in general. And so both um, the characteristics of the cancer are different and the patients themselves are just less healthy. So, uh, so just from the, in terms of just looking at the patients, two uh, very different patient populations. So how did this knowledge develop? Um, so uh, we'll take you. Uh, so I'll take you back a little bit. So the the turning point in understanding HPV and head and neck cancers uh, was in the late '90s or maybe the early 2000s. And so there was this important study in 2001 from the New England Journal looking at um, patients who have head and neck squamous cell carcinomas associated with HPV virus and. Uh, there was a very strong association with the location of the tumor being in the back of the throat, which is the oropharynx. The oropharynx is just behind, uh, uh, just behind the mouth. And so you see that there's an odds ratio of 14 for oropharynx. 2001. 2007, um, another publication, the New England Journal, that looked at um, uh, behaviors of patients and, and and risk factors. And so there was a very strong association with, um, with having multiple sex partners uh, uh, as being a risk factor for the development of HPV-associated oropharyngeal cancer. So 
we started seeing a pattern in where these tend to occur in the head and neck, which was a little bit special. And we started noticing a pattern in um, differences between um, uh, patient characteristics. So 2010, this was a study led by, um, or uh, this was, uh, this was a study um, uh, in radiation oncology. And, uh, and what we found was that um, uh, HPV associated oropharyngeal cancers, the patients um, have an, like, despite having, uh, even if they had advanced disease, there was an opportunity for patients to have a very long prognosis. And so, and so even with patients with big tumors or they've, or they're spread outside the primary site, you can find a group of patients as long as they had HPV associated tumors, you can find a group of patients that at three years, 93% of them would be alive, which is uh, very unusual for squamous cell carcinomas for any other, uh, uh, for squamous cell carcinomas in general. So unique look, uh, so um, more predictable location, unique risk factors, and um, and a very favorable prognosis in general is what we're finding over time. And so very recently it changed our staging system. And so in the old days, all of these would be considered the same, but if you took into account the fact that they had HPV, we can find some patients even with very advanced disease that we would still call um, you know, stage two or even stage one. So it's, um, you would be hard pressed to find another cancer that is spread outside the primary tumor site and gone to um, uh, lymph glands. So, you know, you would be hard pressed to find another cancer where the cat is out of the bag, so to speak, and still be able to call the stage one. But you can for HPV associated oropharynx cancers. And so now I want to uh, finish off my talk and talk about. Um, uh, the efforts that we're leading here at UCSF um, and trying to reduce the side effects and trying to improve the quality of life uh, for patients uh, with these types of cancers. So I mentioned that patients tend to live longer with this type of cancer. And for that reason, for HPV cancers of the or oropharynx, deintensification is the cry. Um, so deintensification means that we want to maintain the high bar of high cure rates that I was uh, referring to at the beginning in our cookie cutter approach, but we want to change things so that we reduce the long-term toxicities of treatment. And so at UCSF, uh, each one of these pillars, um, we have a leader in, um, so we have leaders uh, at uh, UCSF who are trying to refine um, surgical approaches. So in the old days, to be able to access the back of the throat, um, surgeons would have to do mandible split surgeries and basically cut the mandible in half and to be able to access it. Um, but nowadays, um, our, uh, um, our, our surgeons uses robots and, and accesses, uh, accesses the tumor through the mouth directly, and these are called trans... Uh, Transoral robotic surgeries are, are also known as TORs. Uh, in, in, our in, in our department, we refine the use of radiation so that it's more targeted and personalized. And then our colleagues in medical uh, oncology um, have different um, uh, uh, drugs, including immunotherapy. 
that can uh, potentially help us reach this goal. So there's very so there's many strategies constantly evolving. So in order to be able uh, to achieve um, this goal of deintensification, it does require a big study that's um, that's very rigorously studied. So um, we're starting to see the results of the first wave of studies that have tried to de-intensify de treatments for this patient populations, and it did not work. So there was one study that tried to replace chemotherapy with a non-chemotherapy, and we found that at five years, the proportion of patients alive was lower when we did this. And then there was a very similar study in Europe that used the same approach and, and, and found the exact same result. Um, and so these were fairly high profile studies in the last few years that were reported. And it was a wake up call that these types of studies have to be uh, very carefully done. Um, and, and one cannot just assume that you can just remove uh, one part of the treatment and be able to again, maintain the high bar of cure and still uh, reduce toxicities. Um, you know, many people think that surgery is a less toxic treatment than radiation. Um, but there was a randomized study in Canada that showed that this was not the case. And, um, and if anything, I, there, are, there are caveats here. So uh, which I won't go into, but the punchline um, of the study for me is that you should just not assume uh, you really have to do the study. And in this study in Canada, um, the, um, the supposed uh, improved swallowing you would have with, uh, with surgery over radiation, that was not a finding that, uh, that, that bore out. So in our department, what are we doing with, um, with radiation? So uh, led by uh, the efforts of, uh, of Dr. Suyam in our department, um, you know, we are a national leader in terms of refining the use of radiation for this cancer. And so this is more of an academic slide, but uh, I, I put this up here to show you that um, uh, many different uh, many different centers around the country are coming up with their um, secret sauce, so to speak, or their regimen of trying to make the treatments more tolerable, but also maintain a high rate of cure. Um, so most of these are um, single institutional studies. Um, uh, so uh, specific to their institution. Um, here at UCSF, um, uh, under Dr. Suyong's leadership, we uh, recently completed a phase two study. So this is a cooperative uh, group study, meaning that this is a study that is open all over the country, uh, but it was led here, and um, it had a and it tested a provocative uh, hypothesis that we could reduce the the dose of radiation, and um, and try to achieve the goal of deintensification that I was talking about. And so this is, um, so, so this study has been completed. 
the study that we currently have open uh, will become a phase three study that uh, is a fairly complicated design, but um, uh, but the key point is, or, or the objective is the same, which is to try to reduce the side effects from the radiation. Um, it's, it's a randomized study, so patients can be treated on one of, uh, of, of the arms of the study. And the best treatment arm of the study that's being led here will likely become the standard of care um, for what is you know, far away now in this country, the most common head and neck cancer. And it's exciting that the standard of care uh, will likely um, uh, be the result of a study that was led here at UCSF. Um, so I, I leave you with the following takeaways. Um, standard of care chemo radiation for locally advanced HPV associated oropharyngeal cancers is associated with uh, lifelong debilitating side effects. Um, we know that this patient population tends to be younger, healthier, with less of a smoking history. And um, we are a leader in terms of uh, refining the treatments and uh, for this type of cancer. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.